Open your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We'll stand for the reading of the Word, Matthew and chapter number 16. Give you just a second to find uh, the place there and then kind of uh, fill in what uh, takes place right before uh, where we are going to read. This is the uh, portion of Scripture where Jesus and his disciples were in Caesarea Philippi. And that's when Jesus came to the disciples and said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they answered, Well, some say this, some say that. And then he asked them this question that he continues to ask, But whom say ye that I, the Son of Man, am? Whom say ye that I am? And that's when Peter spoke up. And uh, everyone here that reads the Bible any at all and been around the Bible and the Gospels much knows that when Peter spoke up, it wasn't always a blessing. And Peter spoke up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The central truth of all the Bible, right there. The central truth of the entire Word of God, that Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus answered him and said, uh, Well, you've said well, uh, Simon, son of Arjona. He said, For flesh and blood is not revealed unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven has revealed this unto you. And then Jesus goes on, and this is the portion where he says, uh, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he talks about the responsibility, the authority given to the church. And then he said in verse number 20, if you'd look there, please. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, that verse right there uh, to a casual reader would seem so strange. Those words may sound strange to some in this room tonight. Why would he say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus tell him, My Father revealed that to you, now don't go tell anybody. That's just the opposite of how we think and how we understand that we are supposed to do. We are supposed to tell everyone that Jesus is the Christ. So why did Jesus tell the disciples at that time that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ? Let's keep reading. Verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Paragraph marker. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Now, so I don't have to get bogged down later to explain that. I want you to go back to verse 25 when it said, For whosoever will save his life, see the word life there? And verse 25, And whosoever will lose his life, the second time in verse 25. Now in verse 26 he said, uh, What is a man profit if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The word life and soul come from the exact same word. So oftentimes when you think of soul, you may often think about that uh, eternal destiny of the soul, when really most often in the Bible when soul is used, it simply has to do with an individual's life. That simple, and that's how it is right here. And oftentimes verse 26 is an abused passage, 
And Jesus is basically under, giving understanding to his disciples about what happens when they save their life or what happens when they lose their life to his purposes. So we're going to get to that and talk about that. Just remember the definition there and the meaning of life and soul when we come to it. Father, we ask your blessings now upon our time together in the Word once again. And it would be foolish of us, O oh God, to think that we could come and assemble and profit, benefit, see your purposes accomplished just by the exercise of assembling and somebody standing up and saying what your Word says. We acknowledge our dependence upon the working of your Holy Spirit. He who inspired these words alone has access to the hearts of men and can make the words meaningful, can make them life-changing, can correct a path or a life that is on the wrong path and not headed the right direction. That can only be done by the working of your Holy Spirit. And I want to acknowledge that as the preacher tonight, Lord, that I need the I need the unction and the help of your Holy Spirit. And I want to acknowledge also on behalf of those before whom I stand that for your purpose to be accomplished, whether it's tonight or any other time that your word is preached, your Holy Spirit has to be at work. We acknowledge our dependence upon you. And so we pray that you would bless and get glory to yourself. We'll thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. May be seated. Back, uh, oh, two or three years ago, I was uh, preaching in the area of Boston, Massachusetts, on the way the other side of the country. And it was a revival meeting there. A young man was the pastor of a church I'd been at on several occasions, and it had several pastors and and uh, this young man, his dad came to Heartland Baptist Bible College when he was in his 50s. So he was the, uh, well, they called him Grandpa. And if you can imagine, the young students made fun of him in all kinds of ways uh, for being the old man on the campus. But he was a real blessing. He was a real blessing while he was there. And he graduated and went on. And his son was pastoring the church where I was preaching. So the dad, who had been a student at Heartland, came to the meeting uh, to visit his son and to be in the meeting. And while uh, I was there on that first day, he said, Brother Sam, how about we get together and have a breakfast one morning? Could you do that? I said, I'd love to do that. So we did. We got together for breakfast. And by now, he's past 60 years of age by the time this happens. And so he comes in the restaurant where we are. And this summer, it was in the month of June. And it was summertime. And he comes in. He's got a T-shirt on. And I noticed that for a 62, three-year-old man... I mean, his biceps were big, his shoulders, you know, the barrel chest, just a man in extremely good physical condition. And so he took a seat there, and after he sat down, why, I said to him, called him by name, and I said, wow, looks like you're staying in shape, and you're really uh, buffed up there, you're really in good physical shape. Well, he just kind of lowered his head and tried to be humble about it. And I said, don't try to be humble, you wore the t-shirt so I would notice. So don't act like this is all a bunch of humility. You was hoping I'd notice this. And so we got to talking. And uh, he talked to me about his regiment and what he goes through and everything. And he said, do you do any exercise? I said, oh, yeah, climbing the steps of platforms and going up and down while I'm preaching and stuff like that. And I talked to him about the time I used to do weights and do push-ups and do all that kind of thing. And I told him I do, I, I do kind of miss the time. When my wife would come up to me and get a hold of my arm here and say, nice, nice, come on, I'm as vain as anybody else. That was a good thing. And she'd say, nice. And now she comes up and says, what happened? You know, and so it's not quite like it used to be. So this individual started trying to press me to uh, get into exercise and weights again. And he said, because you can get in this kind of shape. And I looked at him again and I said, no, no, <laughs> this is not... Not going to happen. And he said, but you, you may not look exactly like this. And I said, I guarantee you it won't look exactly like that. But he said, uh, you, you could do it. You could get in shape. And you, I said, no, no, it's not going to happen. 
And so he said, well, why wouldn't you at least get back and try to get some of those muscles back and all of that? And I said, it costs too much. And he said, uh, well, you can join these health clubs and they have special deals. And I said, no, Bruce, I'm a Baptist preacher. I got plenty of money. That's not the issue. I said, the issue is I am not going to pay the kind of price it takes to look anything like that. That's not where I am in my life. It's not that important to me anymore. Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't know. But I can just tell you right now, I'm not going to do it. I am not going to pay that kind of price to get in that kind of shape. That's it. So we went on our way. Well, it was about two weeks later. I was on the other side of the country. and I was in Washington. And I was preaching at a youth camp there that is right above the Columbia River. And, and in the middle of the state, as far as east and west is concerned, and uh, way down there in the southern part, right by the beautiful Columbia River. And over here at this camp, it's a, it's a rustic camp. Uh, there is not much green grass around there. This, by now, it's in the middle of July. I mean, it was very, very hot. And you could look over to the west, and some of you have been in this area, no doubt. You could look over to the west, and there stood Mount Baker. Now, Mount Baker is a snow-covered mountain, 12,280 feet, the third highest mountain in the Cascade Range, and it's sitting out there, and for me, I can't keep my eyes off of it. It is just magnificent. It's beautiful. And as uh, you go through the day, it looks a little bit different each time as you pass through the day. Uh, many of you have seen how the mountains are that way. And I'm telling you, it was just fantastic. And I said to the young man that was the pastor of the church that ran the camp, and he ran the camp, I said to him, and I said, I can't take my eyes off of that mountain. It's beautiful. I said, I bet that is a sight to see from the top, because then you can see a whole lot of the other mountains in the Cascade Range. And I said, that, I bet it's a sight. He said, I've been up the mountain. We've been up it. He said about 12 of us got together. I think that was the number. About 12 of us got together, and we went up that mountain and back down. He said, from the time we started and went up to the time we came back, 18 hours. It took us 18 hours to get up there and back. And he said it was grueling. And I said, was it worth it? He said, oh, yeah, it was worth it. And then he said, hey, you're coming back here in a year or two. He said, uh, why don't you come earlier, stay late, and we'll take you up that mountain. And I said, no. No, I'm not going up the mountain. He said, uh, no, we can do that. He said, uh, we'll have the equipment here. You don't have to pack for travel and all that kind of stuff. We'll have the equipment. We'll just take a little extra time. Uh, he said, we don't have to do it in 18 hours. We can take a little extra time. And I said, like three days. I said, no, I'm not going to do it. And he kept pressing me on it. And I said, I called him a name and just said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just not going to pay that kind of price. I am not going to do it. And so I said, if somebody wants to take me up in a helicopter, I'll be glad to go up and look. But I'm not going to do what it takes to go up and down that mountain. Some of you are looking at me like, well, you're terrible. Well, I'm just taking advantage of the fact I'm old. I don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore, so I'm not going to do it. And so I'm not going to pay that price. Now, the reason I mention all of that is this. Every believer in this room tonight is of the biblical intelligence to know that in our spiritual life, we should be growing stronger and climbing higher all the time. Now, we know that. When we are told to exercise ourselves in the Word of God and to grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and to grow as believers, we know that is how it's supposed to be. And as believers, we should be growing ever stronger and climbing ever higher spiritually. I'm going to say it one more time. If you don't get some amens, I'm going to preach for about an hour and a half tonight. Now, is everybody with me here? We know, we know that as believers, we should be growing stronger in the faith, and we should be climbing spiritually higher all the time, and there's no place to stop. I've been saved since I was six years of age. I've already shared my age with you now. And as long as I have the presence of mind to comprehend the Word of God and the presence of mind to have a walk with God, there is not a reason in this world that I can't grow stronger in the faith and climb to new spiritual heights. That's the way it's supposed to work. Amen. But few are. 
I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be unkind. But I've observed this thing for a long time. I pastored two wonderful churches. I don't have one negative thing to say about it. I can just say that in no church that I go to is there a pastor that is totally content and happy with the level of growth of many of the people that of, that, of that congregation. And I know as a pastor, I've watched some people that I loved and cared for and preached to and invested time in that they were about here spiritually when I became their pastor. And 20 years later, they were still about there. Now, there's something wrong with that. Somebody said, it could be your preaching. You know, I thought about that. But then I thought, well, why have there been some others, many others, that have in fact grown spiritually and grown stronger and climbed higher? Why is it? So somebody might ask the question, why isn't that the case for every child of God that through the course of our life we are growing stronger in the faith and we are climbing higher spiritually? Why isn't that the case? And I'm going to tell you why. The cost. It costs. There's a price to pay. It costs. Now, to be very clear, most have a handle on this, but just to be very, very clear, I just want to say, Jesus is not teaching his disciples here how to know that they're saved and going to heaven. That is not what he is doing. He is teaching his disciples on what it means to be a disciple and to be a follower of him. Because I would be uh, terribly embarrassed if somebody walked out and thought, well, he said that I can't go to heaven unless I pay the price. No, the price for our salvation, it was costly, but it wasn't paid by us. If you read the book of Romans in chapter number 5, you're going to see that it says four different times that this salvation of ours is a free gift. Four times. A free gift. A free gift. And for you and me, all we did to be saved is receive what the Lord Jesus Christ did when he went to the cross and paid for our sins, was buried and raised again from the dead. And as many as receive him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God. That's all we could do is receive the gift that is given to us. And the price was high, all right. The cost was very high, but it didn't cost me to get saved. But it does cost to be his followers. Now, Jesus is teaching his disciples that very thing because obviously they were lacking. They didn't get it. Uh, we talked about that verse where he said, charge his disciples that they should tell no man. Why did he tell them? Don't go tell anyone that I am the Christ. Why did you do that? All right, let's just think about this now. When we come down to verse number 21, it says that there's sort of a transition in uh, what's taking place here. And Jesus began, so this is the first understanding that they are having of this, and Jesus is giving it to him, that he is going to go to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be delivered into the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He is going to be delivered into the hands of those who hate him. And he said... I must die and be raised again the third day. So he said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, be delivered into the hands of those that hate me. I will suffer and die there and raise again the third day. Now, I'm not sure the disciples even heard him say the third day because they were so stunned and shocked by the initial announcement that I'm going to Jerusalem, be delivered into the hands of these that made themselves the enemies of the Christ, and I'm going to be delivered into their hands and die and raise again the third day. They were shocked. They were stunned. I don't think you and I have any way of knowing what a surprise this was to them, what a shock it was to them. And somebody says, what do you mean it was a shock? Well, why do you think Peter took him? You know what it means when it says he took him? If you study it out, you'll see it simply means he got a hold of him. He took him. He put his hands on him. Oh, no, no, no. This is not, this should not happen unto me. Pretty much Peter is saying, not under my watch this isn't going to happen. No, no, no. You're not going to go to Jerusalem and be delivered into the hands of those who despise you and hate you and, and suffer and die. No, no, no. Peter said that is not going to happen. And think what a bold move it was for, G, uh, for Peter to take Jesus, the Son of God, God made manifest in the flesh. Come on. The Christ, the Son of the living God. He just got through saying so. And then he takes a hold of him and says, no, no, and began to rebuke him. I'm sure there are men here that have been in the military. 
Can you imagine a man in the military that is given orders by his uh, superior and he doesn't like the orders that he's getting, so he takes the superior officer and gets a hold of him and says, Now let me tell you something. I am not going to do that. How do you think that would go with him? You just don't take somebody of significant authority and do that. I grew up when uh, my dad was the authority in the home. My mom was the greatest godly influence. My dad was a, uh, loved the Lord as well, but my mom was the most godly influence. My dad was definitely the authority figure in our home. And I don't even remember my dad saying, Sam, you're not going to go with me today to the farm sale over at such and such a place. You're going to stay here and clean the chicken house. That was my most unfavorite job on the farm. I like fried chicken, boiled chicken, barbecue chicken, baked chicken. I like chicken about any way, and I love eggs about any way you can fix them, but I hate chickens. They're nasty. And so I, I don't even remember my dad saying, you're going to stay here and you'll have the chicken house cleaned out by the time I get home. What if I'd have got a hold of my dad and said, now let me tell you something. I'm going with you, and then I'm going fishing. What, what do you think that would have been like? Well, if you knew my dad, you'd know. Not good. I don't even remember doing that, and if I would have done it, I wouldn't remember it. I'm quite sure. You just don't do that. Now, let's take it to a higher level. This is Jesus, the Son of God. All powers given unto me in heaven and earth, he said. Come on. This is supreme authority walking among men. And he said that I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer there, be delivered into the hands of these men and suffer and die there. And Peter gets a hold of him and said, oh, no, you're not. This shall not be unto thee. Now, think about that. Why did Peter do that? You know, it'd be nice if we could conclude, well, they just loved Jesus so much. They loved him so much, they just couldn't bear the thought of this taking place and of this happening to them. I wish that was the case, but that's not the case. See, the whole idea is that these disciples, like many of the people that had been exposed to the public ministry of Jesus Christ, they believed that he was the Messiah. Watch. But to them, Messiahship meant that he is going to reign that he is going to establish his kingdom. That he is going to liberate Ro uh, uh, Israel from the misery that they were under Roman authority. And that they would be liberated from that. They'll make him king. Jesus is going to restore Israel back to prominence in the world. And that's why the disciples kept talking about who's going to sit on his right hand and who's going to sit on his left hand. Because they were not thinking about Jesus fulfilling the role of the Messiah uh, according to the Scripture and according to the prophecy and according to what Jesus said, they were thinking that He is the Messiah. That means that He is going to reign. And when He reigns, somebody's going to sit on His right hand. Somebody's going to sit on His left hand. And that's why they had contention all the way to the shadow of the cross as to who would be the greatest and who would sit where. Is everybody with me here? That's exactly where they were. As a matter of fact, this was a widespread problem. I can show you in the Gospel of John chapter 6, I believe it's verse number 15, where Jesus was among the multitude, and he had done many mighty miracles in their presence, mighty miracles, and everyone was aware of it. And the, and the Scripture says in 6.15 of John that Jesus slipped away from them, lest they take him by force to make him king. So that was a widespread thought. Anybody that can say to the wind, stop blowing, and it stops, to the sea, lay down, and the waves of the sea lay down, can say to the blind eyes, uh, be open and see, and to the demons, flee, and had the power that Jesus had. They believed then that he was the Messiah and the King, and so he is going to reign. And that's what the disciples thought. And their expectations were this high. He's going to reign, liberate us from Rome, restore Israel to prominence in the world. One of us will sit on his right hand. One of us will sit on the left. We'll have this prominent position with him because we have been his followers. And that was their thinking. How did Jesus answer? Oh, boy. Look in verse 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Satan? Jesus called Peter Satan? You know what the word Satan means? 
adversary. That's exactly right. Adversary. An opponent of. And Jesus is telling Peter, as long as you are in my face telling me what I will and will not do, you are adversarial to the purpose for which I came. You are an adversary of my Father's purposes. And they had it in the mind, ruling and reigning, Jesus is talking about suffering and dying. So here's what Jesus is doing. He is giving them understanding. Now watch this. Because they didn't comprehend. Peter didn't and the others didn't. They didn't comprehend the things that be of God. They comprehend the things that be of man. Here he is. He is the promised one. He is the Messiah. He will rule. He will reign. Rome will have no more authority over us. And Israel restored to prominence in the world. Oh, this is all wonderful and great. And Jesus said, no, you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like my father's purposes. And their expectations came crashing down. Do you know basically what Jesus is doing? He is redefining for them what it means to be Messiah. Think about this. The disciples had been with Jesus. It's moving on in his, uh, in his public life. It's getting toward the end. And the cross is just out there in the future, not far and, and the disciples are thinking about Messiah having to do with reigning in power and glory. And they forgot all about the greatest prophecy in the Old Testament of the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, it's 12 short verses. Ten of those verses have to do with his suffering and his dying. The reproach that he would bear. That he would take our iniquities upon himself. And that he would die. And that he would have stripes that really belong to us. Is everybody listening to this? And he is redefining for them what it means to be Messiah. And they had in their mind, Messiah reigning. Jesus said, no, Messiah means I suffer and die. And I wish we had time, but I won't take the time to go read all of Isaiah chapter 53. And it's just the last ten verses of the twelve verses of the chapter. It's verse after verse after verse of talking about how Jesus will suffer. And how he will bear our sins. And he will have reproach. And he will be shamed. And he will die. That's what the whole thing is about. Can I have your attention up here? Right over their head. They weren't even thinking about suffering. No more than anything, they were thinking about power, and they were thinking about reigning. So Jesus redefines for them what Messiahship means. He must. Did you read that word down there in verse 21? He must. He told them. He must. This means he will. He must go to Jerusalem. He must be delivered into their hands. He must suffer, and he must die to be our Savior, to pay the price for our sins. Now, I have a question here. If they misunderstood Messiahship, which they did, you think they might misunderstand discipleship? Because if we'd have gone to do an interview, Pastor, with the, uh, with the disciples and said, Okay, so you're walking with Jesus. And Peter, what a statement he made. Whoa, what a statement. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a statement they made. What does it mean to you disciples that he is the Messiah? Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means he's going to establish the kingdom. He's going to reign. He's going to liberate Israel. What does it mean for you to be the disciples? Well, somebody's going to sit on his right hand. Maybe Peter said, why not me on the right and Andrew on the left? Or James and John, yeah, well, what about us? We have a brother combo here. What about James on the right and John on the left? What about that? And the other disciples resented all of this. Come on, the son, the mother of James and John, the wife of Zebedee, came and made an appeal to him that one of her sons sit on the right and left. Come on, it's a big deal. It's how they were thinking. I'm asking the question, if they didn't understand Messiahship, which they did not, which they did not, what do you think is the likelihood that they did not understand discipleship? 
And they thought discipleship meant that they will get the overflow of his power and the glory that he is going to have when he establishes his kingdom. And they too will have authority and they will have power and they will reign with him. And that's what it meant to be a disciple. Boy, Jesus lets the air out of their balloon. In verse 24, he said, then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, that's the definition of followership, discipleship, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, follow me, Jesus said, if any man will come after me, follow me, if any man will come after me, you want to be an authentic disciple, or you're going to forget about glory and reigning. For now, you want to be my disciple indeed? You want to be an authentic follower of Jesus? What did he say? You can understand this in the King James. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Self-denial. Man, this is a wonderful attendance here tonight. It's a blessing. But what if the pastor would have advertised and put a sign out there and, and advertised on the, on the uh, social media and over the technology and all of that? What if he'd have put a, uh, an advertisement out here? Uh, uh, come to Heritage Baptist Church for the revival Sunday evening, 5 o'clock. The subject is self-denial. Don't you know people be lined up trying to get in here? Thank you for getting that, Justin. I appreciate it. Don't you know people would be lining up? So everybody appreciates sarcasm. But don't you know they'd be lined up and down the streets and be trying to get in here? Man, that's what we why want to hear more about self-denial. That's just not the nature of our culture right now. There is not much interest in self-denial. I was thinking, uh, Pastor, uh, a while ago of the time that I had a whole really bad attitude about this area. Because Kevin Durant was playing basketball here. And he was supposed to be in Oklahoma City. Now, I've resigned from all that. I don't even care. I wouldn't walk from here to back there to watch an NBA game of any kind. So, anyway, I've repented, got right with God about it, but I'm just saying where I was. And so, I remember when Kevin Durant was here, and there was a lot of controversy about the decision he made to come and ride the coattail of the other guys on the, on the Golden State Warriors team. And Kevin Durant explaining the decision he made, here's what he said. He said, the, the uh, statement that got me over the hump and helped me make the decision came from my dad, who, by the way, didn't raise him and had left the home when Kevin was a little bitty boy, like almost infancy, I think. And uh, dad left the home, wasn't a part of his life till much, much later. And he said, my dad said, Kevin, you got to understand, sometimes to become a real man, you have to be very, very selfish. And he said that it was that statement that did it for me. I'm thinking, what fatherly advice that is. Who in their right mind would sit down and tell your son, if you want to really become a man, you must become very selfish. Talking heads in the sports world said, well, you know, that kid, that's, that's not bad. That's right, that's right. It's insanity. It's silliness. Even to many people that don't even know God, that's a bunch of silliness. No, there's not a whole lot of interest in self-denial, is there? Do we know what denial means? I mean, sometimes just a definition of a word we use and understand, sometimes definition can just kind of light it up just a little more. And, and to be in denial has to do with one disassociating oneself from another, uh, one who claims no identity with another, that's, that's what denial is. One who disassociates himself from something or someone and, and completely denies any identity with them. Maybe a good case. Of, well, yeah, it would be a good example, wouldn't it? When Peter came to the place and they said to him as Jesus was uh, taken to be crucified, you're one of his followers. And Peter said, I am not. But you're one of his followers. He said, I know not the man. No, no, your speech gives you away. We know that you were with him, that you're one of the followers. And he cursed and said, I know him not. And what do we call that? The denial of Peter. Disclaimed any identity with Jesus 
or any association with him. I wonder if we know what that means in relation to ourself. He said, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to be my disciple, look at me a second. If you want to go stronger, if you want to climb higher, if you want to be an authentic follower of Jesus, if you want to be more than one that goes to church and then boast to everybody, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to Heritage Baptist Church or whatever the name of the church, I go to that church, yeah, oh, I've, I'm there most of the time, I'm there all the time. Look, you can be, a, hold on just a second, you can be in the chairs of this church every time the doors are open and not be a follower of Jesus. I said, that's no price to pay to bring yourself to church and sit down in these comfortable pews and go through a service of beautiful music and listen to somebody like Pastor Folk. You can do that and never be an authentic follower of Jesus. I, I'll go a step further. You can stand in a pulpit and say what this Bible says and not be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. You can. No, Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself. Disassociate yourself from yourself. I'm looking at, as always, at this church, a lot of young people. Children and then teenagers and young adults. Well, what child or kid or teenager doesn't have ideas and ambitions and desires, plans, things they'd like to do, how they'd like to spend their life, what they would like to be engaged in. I suppose that happens almost all. happened to me. Mine had to do with sports. I way overestimated my athletic ability, so sports was never going to be a part of my life long term. Sports or farming. Yeah, farming with my dad. And I'm sitting in a service on a Sunday night, in our church in my hometown, probably 35, 40 people there. And the Spirit of God came two weeks after camp when I'd surrendered my life to God. To, the Spirit of God came and said, Sam Davison, you preach. I went, well, now, well, now, wait. I meant to get right with God at camp, but I didn't need to be a preacher. And I know God put the finger on my heart and called me to preach that night. In order for that to happen, every ambition I ever had had to die. Every dream I had of farming with my dad, farming like my dad, being in a partnership with my dad, every dream I ever had of that, I had, to, I had to disassociate myself from it. I remember sitting down and talking to my dad about it. And I, and I remember another opportunity where a man was going to set me up, and it could have been quite a blessing, quite a deal through the long haul and all of that. I, I had to say, no, I, no. That's, that's how I have to deny myself. Now, I don't look at that as some big sacrifice that I made to follow the Lord. I figured if I was a farmer, I could be at least $5 million in debt right now. That's the way farming is in a very difficult life. Very, very, very difficult life. So it's not like I feel like I paid a price. But I'm just saying that for whatever ambition desire I had, that had to die. I had to deny myself of that pursuit because I can't be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and pursue my own ambitions as well. I said, I can't be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ and still be in pursuit of my own ambitions. That's what he means when he says, you must deny yourself. You know what there are a lot of people that want? They want a convenient Christianity. They want a convenient discipleship. And I'm just going to tell you right now that a discipleship that excludes self-denial is fake discipleship. It does more damage than fake news. Oh, yeah. Fake discipleship. Well, Brother Sam, I just went through this with a young pastor uh, very recently. Brother Sam, I mean, we're working hard. I labor hard. And he's a good preacher, good preacher. And he said, um, I suppose he's a graduate of Heartland, Brother Sam. Well, sure, of course he is. But anyway, he's a good preacher. And so uh, he's saying, I'm working hard. I encourage our people. I love our people. They seem to love me. But man, I can't get our people out Sunday night. Why don't they come out on Sunday night? And I said, I don't know if you're ready for this or not. 
And he said, well, what is it? You know why they don't come? Yeah. Why? They don't want to. Somebody said, that's not very deep. Well, that's about as deep as it goes right there. They don't want to. Well, what do they want to do? They want to do what they want to do. Whatever it is they do on Sunday night. They don't, they don't want to. They have it in their own mind. I'm just as good. I was there Sunday morning. I can be a follower of Jesus, and I'll set my own terms, and I will do what I want to do, and I will also be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm just telling you right now, that won't work. Now, we're talking about something simple like a Sunday night service, but there's far more that he calls upon us to give in to, to be a follower of his. Isn't that right? Yeah, our own pursuit. Those things of the world that get in the way between us and genuine, true devotion and fellowship to Jesus, they have to be put aside. Yeah, but I like this, and you can't show me in the Bible that I can't do that. No, but I can tell you what Jesus said. If you don't deny yourself, you can't be his follower. So you think I'm not even saved. No, you're missing the whole point. I said, I said already, our salvation is free to us. We receive the gift. Jesus is not telling them how to get saved. He's telling them how to be a disciple. What it means to be a follower of His. And the reason Jesus said to them, hold on just a second. The reason Jesus said to them, don't you go tell anybody that I'm Messiah. The reason He said that is because they didn't have the right message. They thought Messiah meant ruling and reigning. And they thought discipleship meant reigning with Him. And Jesus has a lesson to teach them. Messiahship means He's going to die on that cross. And discipleship means you're going to die to yourself. And if you're not willing to die to self, I'm not saying you're not saved. I am saying on the authority of the Word of God, you are not a disciple. You are not a true follower of Jesus Christ. Because he said, you must. Let me see if I read that right. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There's no other way. Self-denial. Most of you are like me and reading your Bible. And you read about the Apostle Paul. Can I have your attention? You come down to 2 Corinthians 11. It gives that whole list of stuff that he's endured. He's not feeling sorry for himself. He's not trying to get pity for anybody. He's just saying to people that are doubting his apostleship, Look, I've paid the price of an apostle. And he talks about all those things that he's endured from shipwreck to beatings to loneliness and hunger and thirst. And you think about that, you think, my soul, what, how did he do that? He wasn't really thinking about himself. You don't follow Jesus thinking all about yourself. Yeah, but I want, Stop. Yes, but I always thought, stop it right there. The focus can't be on you. I said the focus cannot be upon you. And when the Apostle Paul said, I died daily, what do you think he meant? What do you think he meant? Every day he had to say no to his flesh to follow Jesus like he knew he should follow Jesus. Every day he had to say no to his own wants and ambitions, even his own comfort. So that he could be what Jesus wanted him to be. I died daily. I am crucified with Christ. Jesus said, uh, no, the Messiah must suffer and he's going to come. And he was crucified. And he died on that cross. And Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The only way that Christ can fully live out his life in us is when we crucify self. And then look what else he said. Verse 24. Then said Jesus to the disciples, If any man come after me, let him die himself. Look at this. And take up his cross and follow me. Take up his cross. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. But we could. It could be a whole series of sermons. Take up his cross. Yes. His cross. Identify with the cross of Jesus. Or identify with the shame that he bore. See, a cross is an instrument of shame and reproach. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. That's what the law said. And there was no more demeaning death 
uh, or punishment than being crucified on the cross. It is an instrument of shame. It's an instrument of reproach. When Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, there he suffered and there he died for our sins. And he took the reproaches of those that reproached him upon himself. You know what that means? Our sin is a reproach to Jesus. And he took the reproach of our sin upon himself and bore it on that cross. Watch this now. And him having done all of that, there are people that want to follow him, but never identify in a way that would create them any uh, embarrassment or true identity with Jesus. Because, you know, it's not a really popular thing to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. I just kind of want to be a follower undercover. No. No. If we're not willing to take, take up the cross and identify with his death, his suffering, it's an instrument of pain and suffering. Isn't that amazing how people love to read the stories of missionaries and martyrs? that were true, faithful, loyal to Christ all the way to death, having suffered through pain and sometimes torture and misery. And there are people that admire that and admire that, but will go all around everywhere to avoid any reproach, any pain, any shame, any real self-denial. I'm just telling you what he said. Well, Brother Sam, you mentioned we have young people. This may not be very appealing to young people. What shall we do? Tell them discipleship is something different than Jesus said? No. You don't get true followers that way. Well, there may be some that don't want to do that. Yeah, I know. You don't have to. You may say like I did about the mountain and about the weights. The cost is too high. The cost is just too high. Then don't do it. Save yourself from it. That's what verse 25 is about. If it, if it, no, look, no, look at verse 25. Look at that very quickly. We're, we're about done. For whosoever will save his life, you want to save yourself from self-denial? You, hey, you want to save yourself from bearing reproach? And bearing the cross, you want to save yourself from that? You can do it. You can do it. But look what he said. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Who did lose their salvation? He didn't say they lose their salvation. But they lose, can I have your attention? They lose the life that he meant for them to have. He said, I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And you cannot live a self-centered, self-protected life and call it abundant. It doesn't work. The title of this sermon is, The Cost is High Either Way. Does it cost to follow Jesus? Yes, and he told us the cost. But the cost is high either way. Because if you decide, I am not going to pay that kind of price to follow Jesus Christ then you lose the life that he had for you. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that. My wife and I have been married uh, 54 years, and, and um, I'm not pastoring anymore. I'm not the president of the college anymore. I still have the title of Pastor Emeritus, which means basically nothing. It's honorary. I'm still the chancellor of the school, but I still can't understand what you're supposed to do to chancel. I don't know. So it's honorary, too. So I have more time. I have more time when my wife and I are together. We have more time than I used to have in doing all the demands of the pastorate and the president of the college and such as that. And so we spend a good deal of time in reflecting and talking about, and things come up about the past and people that we've known and met and where we've served and such as this. I was an assistant pastor for seven years, pastored Stillwater 16 years, pastored in Oklahoma City at Southwest for 20 years, and then past 10 years just been traveling all over the country, which I was doing already while I was pastoring and, and uh, president of the school. And we look back, 
And as we were getting ready to move here recently, my wife was going through all kinds of stuff, all kinds of notes and letters. And we got boxes, boxes of notes and letters. And my wife, when I was gone traveling, she had just spent hours reading all this, deciding what to keep and what not to keep. And I'm just telling you, we read more tear-jerking stuff about, do you know what that means? We read more stuff that just brought tears to our eyes and, and touched our heart because this person, well, look what happened to their life as a result of being led to Christ or being discipled or being taught or preached to at Southwest Baptist Church or Stillwater. And we just went through all of that. And my wife and I have looked at each other, Pastor, on more than one occasion and said, what would we rather have done with our life than this? What could we have done that was more satisfying, more gratifying, more fulfilling? What have we done? And, and somebody says, well, the pastor at the ministry can be hard. Oh, hush. Not pastoring can be hard, too. Life isn't easy for anybody. In the, in the ministry and as a pastor, I, I measure my pains and my disappointments, they measure just about like this. And the blessings and the rewards and the joy of serving the Lord and trying to walk with Jesus, I can't reach my arms out far enough to measure it. And you know, I didn't have to do that. I could have protected me. No, I'm going to farm. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to be a preacher. I'm not going to do that. I remember we went to Bible college, and my wife and I left Bible college. We had more money in the bank than we would have the next 20 years. <laughs> that ought to tell you something. Somebody said, well, it must have been hard. We don't even remember that it was hard. It might have been at the time. That's not what we think about. We just think about how God took care and God provided and did this and that. And we look back on it and we said, what would we have rather done than follow Jesus wholly? Now, you can go into a mode of self-protection. Say, well, I'm going to go to church. I'm not an infidel. I'm, I, I am going to go to church, but I'm not going to deny myself, and I'm not going to take up that cross and all the things you're talking about there. But, I, but hold on just a second. You have no idea what you're losing. I said, you have no idea what you're losing. You have no idea the kind of life he has for those who will follow him wholly. Truly, genuine, authentic fellowship. But it costs, to me, it seems to cost more not to follow him. What I gained far outweighs what I would have had had I done my own will. I would have lost immensely the kind of life that he had. So will you. So will you. Sometimes in preaching this, it's like, nobody out here is a disciple. I know there's some genuine followers there. I know there are. But I know there's some that just kind of way out and maybe start and then back up and start and back up and start and back up because this matter of self-denial, it's not fun. We want what we want. But Jesus' word to Bide, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me.